It is so good to be with you. We have come such a long way, and it has been such an amazing journey and such a blessing to me and my family. You are the answer to prayer that has been going on on my part before God, long before I knew anything about where he might take me to answer it. And it is such a humbling thing and a privilege to be with you and to have the ability to be able to bring God's word to you. I pray that it is as much a blessing to you as it is to me. I thank you that you have welcomed us into your hearts and have shown us your love in such an amazing way and in so many ways. And uh, I hope someday to know each and every one of your names uh, so that I can thank you by name. You have me at a bit of a disadvantage, um, but I will get there eventually in time. Alrighty. Well, today, the title of our message is Intervention, How Fast God Can Change a Story. You know, there's times in life where we just need God to change things. Um, I've been there, and this is really God's answer to me and some of the things that I wanted and were was hoping that he would change. And maybe you're in a season of life where there's things going on right now where you need him to intervene and change things for you. Maybe it's because of, of a choice you've made. Maybe it's because of a choice someone else has made. Maybe it's just because of the mysterious chaos of life that you have found yourself in a situation where you need God, the God, to do something that only he can do, and that is to just change the narrative of your life. Maybe there's something really big that has you really afraid or really discouraged or really angry or really confused, and you need him to do what only he can do. The good news for you is that he can and will do that, and we're going to take a look at that today to try to figure out how. Now, I'm going to tell you that the material that we're going to cover to, to figure out how God goes about doing that is somewhat substantial, which is pastors speak for long. So I'm going to try to get through as much of it as I can this morning, but uh, we may wind up having to chop this one and come back next week. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really convinced that it's going to be worth the investment of your time, those of you who are here, and thanks for coming, and those of you who are online, and where are you? No, I'm just teasing her. <laughs> no, we're glad you're watching. Hello to everybody in California. I'm here. You don't know what you're missing. Um, so um, turn, if you will, to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Second Chronicles, and if you can manage to find that, then go to chapter 20. And we're going to take a look at an interesting story today. In order to do that, while you're turning to chapter 20, and don't be ashamed to use the table of contents of your Bible. There's, it's there for a reason. Or if you're on your phone, use the search feature to get where you got to get. I'd rather you be there than to you know, stand on pride and wonder what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm going to back up a little bit to 2 Chronicles 17, and I'm going to tell you the, the story about what we're going to be taking a look at today. It involves a king whose name was Jehoshaphat, and King Jehoshaphat is, is one of these 
rare guys who loved God with all of his heart and put it into practice in how he governed. He was a good leader. Boy, we could use a few more folk like that today, couldn't we? People that are in government who allow their faith to guide and direct and fill what they do, whether it's popular or not, or whether they think it'll be effective or not. King Jehoshaphat loved God. He was the king of Judah, which was the the southern part of what used to be the United Nation of Israel. He was a descendant, a direct descendant of David. He was his great, great, great grandson. And he loved David. No doubt he had been told the stories about David when he was a young boy growing up in the royal court of his father Asa. And he learned about the things that God cared about, the things that God said about how we should live our lives. And yet as he looked over the land of Judah, he saw that those things weren't being honored. In particular, idolatry had swept through the land, primarily promoted by his predecessors, most of all by a king named Manasseh who had openly turned his back on God and had poured the idolatry of the foreign nations into that land and polluted it. And, and actually it began back a little further even with Solomon, but, but it just kept getting worse and worse. And because of their, the idolatry that was going on, there was also wickedness. Whenever you start worshiping or looking to something other than God, to take care of you, you are invariably led into wickedness. And so it was in Judah. And Jehoshaphat knew that things needed to change. So he used the power of his throne to begin to bring change in the land. And he began to rid it of the pagan idolatry by acts of law. But he didn't just tell the people what they shouldn't do. He also began to send government officials and Levitical priests in harmony with one another. Imagine that. You know, faith and government working hand in hand. And he sent them into the surrounding territories of Judah to teach them what God had said, what he had promised, what he had commanded. And so he didn't just tell them what not to do and get rid of their idolatry. He also turned them back toward God himself. And because of it, God was pleased. God is always pleased when we turn back toward him and let go of all the other things that we put in front of him. And so because of it, God began to bless Jehoshaphat. He blessed him by making him more wealthy. He blessed him by making him more powerful. The nation of Judah, which was relatively small, began to grow and grow and grow. And eventually Jehoshaphat is able to muster an army that numbers over a million soldiers. Imagine if you could field an army that big, what the effect might be. Well, I can tell you what the effect was. The surrounding nations were afraid of Jehoshaphat. They would not invade his land. They would not attack his cities. They kept their distance from him. And many of them, including traditional enemies like the Philistines, began to send tribute to Jehoshaphat, just hoping that he wouldn't turn against them. 
God had secured Judah's borders. God had secured Jehoshaphat's throne. He had blessed him, protected him, and made him great. That's 2 Chronicles 17. Now we move to 2 Chronicles 18. Unfortunately, human nature is such that when God is good to us, we tend to forget about him. You wouldn't think it would work like that. You would think that when God blesses you that it would make your relationship with him stronger. But it doesn't. We tend to forget about him. When we get real close to God is when times get difficult. That's when we call his name. That's when we get real religious. That's when we go to church. That's when we pray. That's when we crack open this book. When life gets hard. Well, Jehoshaphat, unfortunately, began to take his eyes off of God because God was blessing him. And he did it because I think the number one thing that causes all of us to take our eyes off of God, and that's fear and pride. But in this case, fear. Jehoshaphat looked out at the surrounding nations and he realized that even though God had blessed him and even though his army was big, he was still somewhat vulnerable and also, on the pride side, it's always desirable to have more power than less. Well, as Judah rises to prominence, another king in the area notices, a wicked king. And so he approaches Jehoshaphat and proposes to him an alliance between their two nations. This king also had a formidable army, and they were very closely related because he represented the northern tribes of what used to be united Israel. His name was Ahab. If you've ever cracked a Bible, you know Ahab was an incredibly wicked, godless man who was under the judgment of the Lord. And in no way, shape, or form would God want Jehoshaphat, a man who was fearing of him and loved him, he wouldn't want him to make any kind of an alliance with a wicked man like Ahab because God had already pronounced that he was going to judge both Ahab and Israel for their wickedness. But all Jehoshaphat could see was the advantage of the alliance. And I'm sure he probably told himself, well, this will be great because then our nation will be reunited. We can always justify the things that we do that we deep down know aren't the right thing to do. And so he builds an alliance with Ahab, and they seal it with a covenant. And the covenant involves Jehoshaphat's son and the heir to the throne, whose name was Jehoram. And he marries Ahab and his wife Jezebel, their daughter, a young, beautiful princess by the name of Athaliah. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that that marriage turns out to be disastrous. It leads to a murderous incident later on. Well, after Jehoshaphat makes this covenant with Ahab, Ahab immediately takes advantage of it because, frankly, he was a lot smarter and a lot more crafty than Jehoshaphat, who was relatively naive. And so he draws Jehoshaphat and the army of Judah into his own private war against his northern neighbor, the Arameans. And he tells Jehoshaphat, will you come to war with me? Who can stand against us with our combined mighty army? And Jehoshaphat says, sure, 
And so they meet together for a confab before they go into battle. And Jehoshaphat brings his mighty army of Judah up to join with the Israeli army. And they're ready to square off against the Arameans. Their chances look pretty good. And every one of the false prophets that Ahab has surrounded himself by, because he's gotten rid of the godly prophets, all tell him, go into battle, you're going to be successful. But Jehoshaphat, realizing that, hmm, These aren't necessarily the kind of people that I would want to consult to find out whether or not God is with us, which is interesting because it's the first time that Jehoshaphat actually consults with God through this whole debacle. He should have asked God how he felt about making an alliance with Ahab, and God would have told him in no uncertain terms, absolutely not, but he doesn't. But now that battle is looming, he seeks God. So they find a lonely prophet, one of the few remaining, who comes to both Ahab And Jehoshaphat and says, well, I've got some news for you. When you guys go off into battle, it is God's plan that you be destroyed, primarily because of you, Ahab. He's already warned you that he's going to judge you, and this is judgment day. Incredibly, Jehoshaphat and Ahab ignore this prophet and go off into battle. But I think deep down... Ahab might have had an inkling something bad might happen. So he makes a deal with Jehoshaphat, and he tells him, listen, when we go into battle, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to disguise myself just like a regular soldier, and that will allow me to go in and be able to do what I'm doing without being noticed. But you, you go ahead and wear all of your royal regalia, and the royal chariot, that's where you'll perch, and By all intents and purposes, you're going to be the only one that looks like he's in charge. Meanwhile, I'll do what I'm going to do on the sly over here. Now, I'm sure that might have appealed to Jehoshaphat's pride, but he certainly had no inkling that what Ahab was doing was essentially setting him up to be a body double because Ahab knew that the Arameans hated him and were looking to kill him. And so as soon as they went into battle, every Aramean was going to be trying to kill whoever they thought was Ahab. In fact, that's what their commander and king had told them. I don't care who else you fight. If you see Ahab converge every resource we have, all of our ordnance, and kill him, you kill him, we win the battle. So off they go into the conflict, and immediately Jehoshaphat begins to realize something is wrong. Nobody else seems to be getting fought against. All of the Aramean army, which today would be modern Syria, converged on his position, and it seemed like every soldier was trying to kill him. As a result, he turns his chariot around and starts, we're told, literally trying to get out of Dodge. He's running away, screaming like a frightened schoolchild. Meanwhile, Ahab, I'm sure, was sitting off in the background going, this is awesome. Nobody even knows I'm here, and I can win the battle carefully and clandestinely. Well, to his credit, at that point, Jehoshaphat doesn't just cry out in terror, but he also cries out to God, which let's not judge him too harshly because I know I've done that before, especially after I've made foolish mistakes. Meanwhile, Ahab thinks he's sitting pretty, not realizing that God had a plan. Well, the Arameans begin to rout the combined army of Judah and Israel. Jehoshaphat is making a beeline back home toward Jerusalem. And Ahab thinks he's safe as he's continuing to lead his soldiers from what he thinks is anonymity. 
But then one Aramean soldier just lets loose an arrow, and it flies, and God grabs it and directs it straight into Ahab's chest, mortally wounding him and eventually killing him, just as God said would happen. With Ahab dead, with Jehoshaphat on the run, with the Arameans prevailing, all of the Judean and the Israeli soldiers who survive, which is only a small remnant, run for the hills. Jehoshaphat eventually returns to his home in Jerusalem, which brings us to 2 Chronicles 19. As soon as he gets home with his tail between his legs, God dispatches a prophet, a guy by the name of Jehu, who goes to Jehoshaphat and basically tells him how the war go. Not good, I would imagine. God has a message for you. Everything that happened is because you made an alliance with that wicked king. And I have dealt with him just as I've dealt with you. And I'm not pleased. Now, to his credit, Jehoshaphat doesn't respond the way a lot of people in power would. Namely, he doesn't blame shift. Okay? And he doesn't get angry and vindictive, and he doesn't sulk and hide. He takes his medicine. He acknowledges that God was right and he was wrong and that this had cost him. And then Jehu warns him, there's going to be discipline for what you've done. To his credit, Jehoshaphat then settles back into what he had been doing before, continuing his spiritual reforms throughout Judah, getting rid of every Asherah pole and every pagan idol and sending his spiritual leaders with his government officials into every little remote Judean city to continue to teach them the right thing, the right way. And as a result, those spiritual reforms begin to take effect. But then in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, it's time for the discipline. A coalition of three neighboring nations form an alliance, and decide that it is time to take down Judah because they are fat with wealth and yet vulnerable. Their once mighty army has been cut down to size by the war with the Arameans. And so now we can move against them. And so they do. They march out in force and prepare to attack and crush Jerusalem and then Judah. By the time Jehoshaphat finds out that they're on the way, they're only 48 hours away. The king is desperate and severely depleted. From a purely earthly perspective, there's no hope. He cannot fend off the masses of numbers who are coming out against him. What is he going to do? Well, to his credit, he takes a far different tact than he had before. He's learned his lesson from the little incident with Ahab and the Arameans. And so he fashions a new plan, which is a good plan and one we can learn from. First of all, 
he calls for the entire nation of Judah to begin to fast, to do without food for a spiritual purpose of seeking God, to focus their attention. Secondly, which always goes with fasting, he calls for the nation to pray, for God to deliver them, for God to be merciful, for God to not hold against the nation of Judah his foolish mistake. And then lastly, and most importantly, he calls for the people of Judah to acknowledge their sin in repentance. He calls for his people to acknowledge that they've done wrong and to cry out to God for forgiveness and for protection. Don't forget that because that's going to be real important as we move along. He then calls for every person that's available, and in particular, their governmental and spiritual leaders, to come from the remote areas and to assemble in the city of Jerusalem. And so they do. They're in the courtyard, which is freshly built, of the Jerusalem temple. And Jehoshaphat stands before the people. And he does something else that we could use a whole lot more of today. He leads them in corporate prayer. There were probably thousands of people, influential governmental leaders, influential religious leaders, and he has them bow their head and humble their hearts as he leads them in prayer. He offers, I mean, and it's heartfelt, an invocation where he worships God where he reminds everyone of God's covenant with Israel. He humbles himself, and then he issues a cry of expectant faith for God to hear them, see them, and protect them. And then, this is the best part of all, he has everyone become silent. Not a word is spoken there's an eerie silence that creeps out over an entire city. Imagine that. Where it just it goes from a cacophony of noise to a quiet, quiet prayer with a monarch leading the people before God. And then suddenly, nothing. It may have even started to get a little uncomfortable. But Jehoshaphat knew what he was doing. He knew that they needed to hear from God. And so, nobody was to speak until he did. Which brings us to our passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, starting at verse 14. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And so, get the picture. It's real quiet. 